Okay, this study tonight, I was uh, going to do something else, but I just f- felt the Lord put it on my heart to teach on this tonight and try to just express uh, what the Lord's put on my heart. Um, it's called Love is Not a Feeling. And so uh, it's taken from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 34. And uh, the, the, the backdrop to this is Jesus is still, he's in the, he's in the temple precincts. It's, it's the Tuesday before he's to be crucified on the Friday. So this is the Passion Week. Jesus has already answered all the trick questions of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the Sadducees. And now another Pharisee comes to Jesus with a question, and we're told that he comes to Jesus having perceived that Jesus had answered all those other questions well. Matthew tells us that he came testing Jesus in the sense of wanting to know if Jesus would be able to answer this question. So it seems like this was a question that was common amongst the religious leaders. So, and it seems that this man isn't trying to catch Jesus out, but there seems to be a measure of genuineness behind his question. And he wants to know if Jesus has the answer. And you get the sense by the way that Jesus replies to him that there's some sincerity in the question. Because Jesus does express his, he doesn't doesn't express his usual sarcasm, you know, with the scribes and the Pharisees when they came to him. He would answer and he would say, have you, have you never read this, you know? And uh, it was always kind of a, you know, a, a way of, because they're always reading, they're always thinking that they're experts. So there isn't that kind of cynicism from Jesus um, with those who are trying to accuse him here. There isn't the same kind of response. It seems a genuine response that Jesus, uh, he responds to him in a beautiful way. Probably this man was sent by the religious leaders, you know, to uh, try and catch Jesus out. But in his heart, there's a genuineness and a tenderness uh, that wasn't there with the previous questions. And so this is the question. Okay, Master, which is the first commandment of all? In other words, what is the most important? What is the most preeminent commandment of them all? And this is... The reply here in Matthew 22, 34, he says, But when Jesus, uh, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, the point that Jesus makes here is really interesting because these two commandments, to love God, to love people, Jesus makes the point that they are inseparable. He's saying you can't have one without the other. Here Jesus is saying that genuine love for God will in and of itself produce a love for people. That my love for God is intrinsically connected to my love for other people and they can't be separated. 
The Apostle Paul puts it this way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And the point that Paul is making there is really an interesting one. He's saying that that there's something very special about being a Christian, being born again of the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then it just becomes this instinctive thing to love other people. You don't need to be taught it necessarily, Paul says there, but it's something innately there because the Spirit of God is now living in you when you're born again. And the fruit of the Spirit living in you is love. So you don't have to be taught it necessarily by man. It's something that's innate within, with, within you now that you're born again. And so for the Christian, although we might not always get it right and succeed to love people as we ought to do, but yet if the Spirit of God is there inside of us, then innately you will be taught by the Spirit of God that we should love one another. And what this means is that when a person is born of God by the Spirit, then this agape love will really become the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. This is the hallmark. And so it is that we can have a ton of religion, loads of Bible knowledge, but it's absolutely pointless, absolutely useless, and has no meaning to it if it doesn't have agape love for other people taking place. And so when we make a mistake, I believe, when we try to make a distinction between our love for God and love for other people, because the reality is we can't separate the two. They are inseparable. A genuine love for God will intuitively produce a love for other people. And so this is what we're going to be talking about. Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples, that you have a love for one another. It's the sign to the world. It's a sign to people outside Christ. It's the hallmark to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. Jesus said, this is the most important sign to the world of how they will recognize the fact that you are truly a disciple of Jesus by the way that you love one another. In other words, when the world comes in contact with the fellowship of believers and sees this, they're going to say, you know what, man? These folks, they don't gossip about one another. They don't badmouth one another. They don't gossip. They don't go around sin-sniffing, you know, and, and uh, finding fault in other people's lives. They don't do any of that kind of thing. They just, they just love people. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's only when, and it's, it's only when that is happening within a church fellowship that the world is going to take notice of the fact that Christianity is something that's real. 
Only then will the world begin to say, you know what, there's something about those people that are so different to what is out there in the world. But you see, it's when people come into fellowship and they find that there's this critical attitude, you know, gossiping and backstabbing and stuff like that, sin-sniffing, you know. That's when they begin to say, well, you know, what's the point of going to, their, to that church? You know, what's the point of going there anymore? I can get that kind of stuff down at the Rose and Crown. That, that's a pub in England. <laughs> Why should I bother going to church to get that when I can get it down at the pub, you know? I thought they got something different to offer, but obviously, because they're doing all that backstabbing and gossip, I, I'm not going to bother going there anymore because I can get that anywhere. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a sign to the world. It's, a whole, it's the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian, a, a disciple of Jesus. That is the hallmark of it. One of the things that Pastor Chuck, you know, I learned from him, he said that a critical attitude, a person who's always looking for faults and flaws in other people within the body of Christ, continually critical and so forth in the fellowship, he said a critical spirit can't survive in an atmosphere of love. He can't survive in that. And he continued that thought by saying, it will either change or it will leave. And uh, as a pastor over the years, I've seen that to be very, very true. A critical spirit can't survive in an atmosphere of love. And one of the great benefits of having a strong, loving church is that there doesn't really need to be that much dis discipline, church discipline, to be applied because when love is at the core of the fellowship, then love fulfills all righteousness. So there's, there's not much to correct. There's always going to be something. But, you know, when a loving church is a loving church, there's not that much to correct. When people, when a fellowship of people are motivated by love, it means then that the person who wants to gossip has nowhere to go with the gossip. Because people who love one another don't want to hear it. They say, if you've got a problem with your brother over there, you go talk to him. Don't talk to me. When a fellowship of people are motivated by love, the one who has the critical, you know, the complainer, has nowhere to go with their criticisms, nowhere to go with their murmurings, because the people who love others will tell the complainer, the one you've got the complaint with, go talk to him about it. And so it's... Uh, a normal, just as a normal physical body needs to be healthy and strong, if a physical body becomes weak, it's then that it no, it's no longer able to purge out the, the poisons from its system when the body becomes weak. And once that happens, then death is around the corner, you know? It takes a healthy body to be able to purge out the poisons within the system. And in the same way, it's unfortunate that the body of Christ generally, especially in England, becomes so weak that it's no longer purging out the poisons from the system. The body of Christ has become weak because it's failed to do what is necessary to keep it strong and healthy. And that is, it's failing to teach the Word of God. And because so much of the church has not been grounded in God's Word, it's become weak and is no longer able to purge out the poisons from within the system. And sadly, it has now become a place where people can hang their gossip and they can come and hang out, hanging on to their sin. 
their immorality, they can hang on to it, and yet still feel comfortable within the church. That's, that's when it's become weak. And then we wonder why it is that the church doesn't have the same kind of power that it did in the first century, you know? So Jesus says by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a sign to the world. It's the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. But more than that, John writing in 1 John chapter 3.14 says, This agape love is not only a sign to the world that we are Jesus' people, but it's also a sign to ourselves that we are Jesus' people. It's the evidence to us personally that we have passed from death to life and are genuinely the disciples of Jesus. He says we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And that is a very serious scripture for us to think about, you know. Yes, our love for one another is a sign to the world that we are his disciples, but it also becomes a sign to each of us personally that we are his disciples. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, let's examine ourselves as to whether we are in the faith. Test ourselves. So it, it Okay, here's a test. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We love one another. Do I love my brothers and sisters? So that's a key way of knowing that you're a disciple of Jesus. If we have love for others who are disciples of Jesus, and if we love our neighbor, if you love your brothers and sisters, if instead of pulling people down, you just want to, we, if we see them as being soldiers in the same army, we, we want to build them up and support them. And find yourself really caring about them. That right there is the proof that we're born again. A genuine love for God will be made manifest by the fact that we also love other people. And if, if both are not there, if a love for God and a love for people is not there, intrinsically linked together, then it, it proves that if, that if they don't both exist, then neither exist. And so this is the key. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in, in death in the sense of darkness. And so it's, this is a very, it's a very serious scripture to think about. And it's a great test by which we determine whether we're truly saved, you know. It's a, it, there's got to be fruit. Just like the test for a love for God is determined whether we keep his commandments. If you keep my commandments, if you love me, that's what you'll do. If you love Jesus, you will have this innate desire to please him. And, be, and pleasing him is by loving others. It's a litmus test for us. And so once again, what John is saying is if my so-called love for God, is my, my love for God doesn't exist. If it's not producing a love for people, then it proves the existence of neither. Neither a love for God nor people. You can't separate the two. If my so-called love for God doesn't produce love for people, then it proves the existence of neither. And this is what Jesus means when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus is saying that having a love for God and a love for God's people are connected. They're inseparable. And he's saying that if I, if I say I love God and yet love for people is not there, then it proves that neither exist. 1 John 4.20 If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. No matter how much I say I love God, if that doesn't produce the love for others, then the Scripture's telling me that someone is lying, and it's not God. The Holy Spirit has been put within us through the new birth, the Spirit of Christ. And so it is that if that same Spirit, that same nature is there within us, then that in and of itself will produce a love for other people. It will produce the same kind of love for people that Jesus has for people. And so if that love for people is not there, then that confirms the fact that a love for God is not there either. Jesus says this in uh, John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you abide in me, if you are connected to me, abiding in the vine, you will bear much fruit. And when you're grafted into the life of God through your faith in Christ, you, you become a partaker of his divine nature. It, that's something that's been placed in us. And therefore, if his life is in us through the new birth, it's unavoidable that you'll begin to bring forth the characteristics of the life that you've been grafted into. For example, if you were to take a branch of an ordinary rose tree rose bush and graft it into the root of a beautiful championship rose bush, graft it right in there, beautiful championship rose bush, then if you nurture that and feed it and fertilize it, then you know what? That ordinary rose branch would eventually begin to take on the same characteristics of what it's now connected to. It would become a fruitful, plentiful, it would grow strong. It would begin to cover the fence simply because it's grafted into the life and the vitality of something that's greater than itself. That's what's happened to us in the new birth. And so it is when you talk about becoming a Christian and living a life for the Lord to a non-believer, the non-believer will often tend to say, well, I believe in God and I want to know Jesus but there's no way I can live like that. I can't live the Christian life. I can't do that. I want to, I want to live for God, but I can't do it. There's no way I can live for that kind of thing. But what does God do then? He grafts you into his, his own nature. And as that nature is fed and waters, after a time, it begins to bear much fruit. Fruit that I could never have brought forth without first having been grafted into the new life. God is love, and so he grafts us into his love, and after a while, that love then will naturally begin to express itself through my life as I continue into, by, in, by abiding in through the vine. Abiding in Jesus, his life was, is engrafted into me. And the fruit of that new life that we're grafted into is the fruit of the Spirit is agape love. 
God the Holy Spirit does not come and live inside somebody's life and uh, without there being some radical change taking place. It can't happen. You can't be connected to him without a change taking place. It simply doesn't happen. There's going to be change. Whenever a person gets connected to the vine, Jesus, there's going to be fruit, and that fruit is love. Verse 36, it says there, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. With all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is, is it's intricately, it's like it. It's connected to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we, great, we make a, a big mistake when we try to make a distinction between our love for God and our love for people. Because the reality is we, we can't separate the two. They are inseparable. They're, they're connected. And if both are not there, then it proves the existence of neither. Have a look at this one in 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him... That he who loves God must love his brother also. Now we might say, well, this, this is the big question about love, you know. People say, how can you command love? How can it be commanded to love people? How can you, be, how can you command love? Because when it comes to love, don't you first have to feel it before you can give it? Is it something you have to be emotional and feel it before you can give love? So how can you command someone to love when there's no feelings of love inside? Well, this is the problem we have with the word love, isn't it? We always associate the word love with our feelings. When we say the word love, we automatically think it's something to do with our emotions. So we then assume that in order to love, we first have to feel it before we can give it. But the kind of love that the scripture is speaking about when he talks about loving God and loving others, it's a spiritual love. It's agape love. And agape love has nothing to do with feelings. Nothing. Nothing to do with feelings whatsoever. Jesus describes this agape love in Matthew 7, verse 12. He says, Therefore, all things that whatsoever you would that men would do to you, you even do the same for them. You see, God wants me to treat people, all people, believers, non-believers, in the exact same way that I would like people to treat me. And so to love others in this way is not a feeling that I must wait for, but rather it's a choice that I must make. It's a choice. Agape love is a choice. God desires you and me to treat others the way that I would like to be treated, whether I feel anything for them or not. I'm to treat them the way I would like to be treated. God is not asking me to like people.
or to feel a certain way about people before I treat them the way that I would like to be treated. He's not asking me to like people. But he expects me to do it out of my love for him. That's the engine that drives agape love. It's my love for God that causes me to want to love other people because I know by doing that it would be pleasing to him. So agape love is not a feeling. It's a choice that's founded upon my love for God and it's not dependent upon my emotions. It's it's dependent upon my obedience to him because I love him to treat people the way that I would like to be treated. Whether I know them or not, whether I like them or not. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? So he's not asking me to like people before I love them. He's asking me to treat them the way I would like to be treated, even though they don't agree with what I stand for. Even when they oppose me, he says, I want you to treat that person the way you would like to be treated. Even when they stand against me. After all, you know, isn't that the way God loved us? When you think about it? The Bible tells us that God is love, and the word there is agape. You see, he loved us when we were his enemies. If you have your Bible, take a look at this. Jesus says this in Matthew 5:45. He makes the sun to rise upon the evil and upon the good. And he sends the rain on the just and upon the unjust. Jesus makes the point that God's love goes out to all people equally, whether they love him back or not. It doesn't mean everybody's saved. It just means that God loves everybody whether they love him back or not. And so even though at one time we were all his enemies, God still loved us. He still loved me when I was his enemy. And our disregard for him did not stop him from loving me. Even when we were his enemies, living in complete opposition to him, He still loved us and still made the provision for us to be forgiven because he loves us. And the same provision that was made for you and for me to be forgiven is made for everybody, every man and every woman on the planet. It's there for everybody, for the prostitute, for the drug addict, for the homosexual, the violent. And because God's love is impartial, Jesus died for them as much as he died for me when I was his enemy. You see, we've all been the enemies of God and we've all been down the same level as sinners and we're all needing salvation, each and every one of us. We've all come short of the glory of God, but God's love is impartial and he's made the provision for us to be forgiven for people like me and people like you, you know. And so this is the deal. God now expects me, now, as his child, to love people the same way, with the same impartiality as he loves everybody. 
Jesus is saying, look, now that you and I are God's children, then you and I should reflect the same attitude towards other people that he does. Your love for others should be impartial, no matter what they are and where they've been and what they've done. He wants to produce in us a love that is totally impartial to what other people may say or think about me. He just wants me. That's not to get me off track. He wants me now to love people. And this is the attitude that he now seeks to produce in your life and in my life. The New Testament is written in Greek. You know that? I think think Joe's taught you that. And there are three primary words in the Greek. There's more, but there are primary three words in the Greek that are translated in our English love, the word love. The English language, we only have one word because, you know, we've got the stiff upper lip, you know. You know. One word for love in our language, and that is um, love. <laughs> for example, I can say, you know, I love ice cream. And uh, Joe was trying to make me eat ice cream yesterday. But then I have to use the same word when I say I love my wife. Now, she is delicious. But my feelings towards my wife are different to my feelings towards ice cream. But it's the same word. I love you. I love that. The English word is limited, love. But the Greeks, because they, they are smart enough to know what, that love uh, exists on different levels, they have several different words for the English word love. And the first one is eros. We derive erotic from it, you know, romance, eros. And this word is actually not found in the Bible, but it is described in the Bible. Uh, It's a romantic love described in the Song of Solomon. This is how sexual love is meant to be. And because this eros kind of love is found in Scripture, it reveals to us that sexual pleasure is not only approved by the Lord, it's not just given to us to have kids, but it's, it's encouraged by the Lord in the bond of marriage. God is not approved. He invented it. But he invented it to keep it within the marriage and to make it something that keeps the marriage together. It's a glue that keeps the marriage together. God invented it. But the Bible does say concerning that marriage is honorable amongst all and the bed is undefiled. But fornicators, adulterers, God will judge. So this is a love that God has given as part of our human personality and our human need within the framework of the marriage. So God's given us this gift. But that gift has to be controlled and brought in submission to a higher love, which is our love for God. So love, God keeps it in order, in its place, which means that we must be rooted in commitment. Must, you know, this kind of love, this eros love, is to be uh, rooted in commitment and and loyalty and and should not find expression outside of what God has commanded. It's to be governed by a a greater love, and that's our love for God. God gives us all good things richly to enjoy. That's how God designed it. The second word for love is phileo. This love is on the natural level. Friendship, friendship kinds of love. It's the kind of love that says, you know what? I like you, you know, because 
you're funny, man. You make me laugh. You know, and it's the kind of love that says, well, you keep me entertained. You make me feel good. I enjoy your company. You make me feel, I like being around you. It's a love that is loving towards others because others are loving back towards me. And it's a love that gives and it's a love that receives and there's nothing wrong with it. It's all good. And that's the kind of love which friendships are built. That's a beautiful thing. Nothing wrong with that. But even as you look at phileo and eros, those kinds of love, you can see that in both cases they are both based upon emotion. They both have a selfish aspect to them. I like you because you make me feel good, and it's love that gives us, receives. It's a reciprocal kind of love, give and take. And it continues, that love continues, as long as they're responding to your love. Give and take love. Built upon our emotions. And they continue as long as that love is reciprocal. So these kinds of love are reciprocal, and they are emotional. Whereas agape love, that's totally different, you know. It's unconditional. It's a love that gives to others without having to receive anything back. It's a love that is given freely, unconditionally, without expecting anything in return. Why? Because the engine that drives that kind of love is born out of my love for Jesus and my desire to please him. No matter what they respond or not, I'm going to treat you the way God would have me treat you because I love Jesus. And that's what he commands me to do. And then it becomes a pleasure to do it because by doing that, I'm pleasing him. Because you know what? Like the Lord who makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and who sends the rain on the just and the unjust, God's love goes out to people equally unconditionally. And whether they love him or not, he's still there. And he still blesses them with everyday breath, food. And so it is to be with us. Agape love is born out of my love for God and my desire to please God. And then when it is given, it's not looking for anything in return because my my, uh, reward in that is that I'm pleasing God. Unconditional love. It's the kind of love that's given freely like God gave his love towards me freely without me giving anything back to him. He went to the cross for me. But this is the problem we have with the word love. We we associate love with feelings. We automatically think it's something emotional. And we assume then in order to give love to people, we have to feel it before we can give it. But that kind of love, that's, that's not the love that Jesus talks about. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The word there is agape. It's a spiritual love where because of my love for God, I'm now choosing. It's my will that's involved in this, not my feelings. It's my will to treat others the way I would love to be treated by others. 
It's nothing to do with my feelings. It's my choice to love God and to love people. Even though they might be opposed to me. I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to treat them. I'm not going to get it right all the time. Because I'm still being trained up in this. This is a lifelong journey, you know. Because I was opposed to God at one time. But he was patient with me. And he kept loving me. When I had that same kind of hostile attitude towards him and showed complete disregard and opposition to him and lived in opposition, he still loved me. He didn't give up. That's how he loved me. And he wants me now as a child to represent that same love to other people, that same impartiality. And although we might not always get it right, as I say, it's always to be our intent, though. It's always to be our intent to love people unconditionally, expecting nothing in return. Treat people the way you would love to be treated yourself. That is to be our intent. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says this, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, by doing this, we demonstrate what family we belong to. That you may be the children of your father. And by living this agape love, it shows what family we belong to. We're showing the same kind of family characteristics. That by doing this, we show God is our heavenly father. And we are a chip off the block, so to speak. Like father, like son. But you and I have this impartial love for others shows that I'm related to the Heavenly Father in the same way that He loves people. I'm demonstrating that. For if you love them which love you, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 5, 46, then what, what reward do you have in that? Don't even the tax gatherers do that? Love those who love them back? If you love those that love you, what, what's special about that? We can all do that, even the lowest of the low in the culture and society. If you salute your brethren only, what are you doing more than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? The non-believers do that? They love the people that love them back? Don't they do that? In other words, if you love those who love you, if you're kind to those who are kind to you and care for those who care about you, what's special about that? Everybody does that. That's the level that everybody's on. You don't need to have any faith or any spirituality to do any of that. Even the tax collectors who are considered the lowest of the low, they can do that. Anybody can love those who love them back. Even the Gentiles with no relationship with God at all even they can do that. Loving those who love you, that's easy. The world functions on that kind of a love. But the point simply is this, that God desires his people to love other people on a higher level than that. He wants our love towards other peoples to be like God's love. And it goes out to all, completely impartially. God wants us to represent him to the world and love others the way that he loves others. 
which is with complete impartiality to what they've done or what they are. Interesting how Jesus, you know, after giving that teaching on agape love in Matthew 5.44, when Jesus then said, he said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He then goes on from that, talking about love, and then he says in verse 48 there, uh, Matthew 5.48, he says, Therefore, therefore, be perfect. Be perfect. Even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. I find that really a fascinating thing. When Jesus says, therefore, be, you be perfect. He says that in the context of what he's just taught. And what he's just taught, when he says that, is agape love. So he gives this teaching on how agape love works and what it looks like. And then he, he closes the teaching out by saying, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So in what sense is Jesus talking about us being perfect? Well, it's in the, it's in the context of what he's just been teaching. It's agape love. When Jesus said this, what he was getting at is that simply this, that a life that is controlled by agape love is the path to the perfect life. A life under control of agape love, he says, that is what is perfect. A perfect life. Not that we're ever sinless, but what he's saying is that when we live under the control of this agape and, and loving people this way, it fulfills all righteousness. Love. Love for God. Love for people. A life lived under the control of agape love sins neither against God or against man. This is what Jesus gets at there in chapter 22, verse 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Everybody. As yourself. Then he continues then. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if I truly understand what agape love looks like, and I'm loving my neighbor as God commands, then I will be living out all the righteous requirements of God's commandments. It's all wrapped up in those two, two little sentences. The summation of everything that God has spoken to us in the Scripture in regards to our behavior is to this intent that we might learn to love one another. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that's been written is to bring us to this point of loving one another. 
Paul says a similar thing in Romans 13, uh, verse 8. He says, look, look at all the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. Paul says, they're all summed up in this one saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of it all. For love will work no evil towards his neighbor. And what Paul's getting at is, if I understand this agape and loving my neighbor as he commands me to, then I will be living out all the righteous requirements that God has commanded. If I love others, I'm not going to be stealing from them, right? I'm not going to be stealing. I'm not going to be lying to him, my neighbor. I won't be lying to my neighbor. If I love him, I won't lie to him. If I love him, I'm not going to be gossiping about him. I'm not going to seek to draw his, you know, kind of destroy his name, his reputation, his character. I'm not going to try to destroy that. I'm not going to have it in for him. In fact, if I love my neighbor as I love myself and treat him the way I would like to be treated, then not only would I not steal from him, but now I'd want to give him something. Out of the abundance of what God has given me. And not only would I not slander other people, but I'd now seek to bless others, and I want the best for other people. And not only would I say, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think agape love goes further than that. It treats others as being better than yourself. The life of the Spirit is actually, it goes above and beyond the requirements of the law. It goes beyond the law. And so too, if I love others like I already love myself then I'll be happy if they get a pay rise and I don't. God bless you, brother. Jealousy is, is finished. It's finished. Because I want the best. Because after all, you know, if I'm in God's will, then God's got what he wants for me. And I don't want anything that's not, that he doesn't want for me. I don't want it. Now, if he gives me a million dollars, I'll be really happy. But if he doesn't, he's going to look after me. He's going to keep me in a place where he's going to speak to me. He's my God, you know. He's personal. Living a life of love means I won't be jealous. I won't hold bitterness. Got to let it go, man, and just let God do it. Let God be your God. Because I want, I want the best for others if I love them. Esteeming others as being better than yourself, Paul said. And the final consideration of all things in regards to this, I can't imagine anything that honors Jesus more than agape love. Because when you look, your life is growing in love, you're not going to take somebody's virginity before they're married. You won't do that. That's something that's precious. And you're not going to take somebody else's wife or husband. Oh, I love her so much. No, you don't. If you loved her, you'd leave her alone. Because you're dragging her into your sin. And if you loved her, you wouldn't do that. You're thinking of yourself. 
You don't, when you love people, you don't break up marriages. You don't break up families. Oh, I love her so much. No, you don't. You're being driven by eros, not agape. You're thinking of yourself. And if you love your wife, you're not going to destroy her life by betraying her and committing adultery. And if you love someone you're tempted by, you know, if you're being tempted by someone else, then if you love them agape, you're not going to seek to bring that other person into your sin. It's time to take up the cross, deny yourself, follow Jesus. Some radical surgery is needed. And if you love others, you're not going to rob somebody of their business. If you're growing in love, you're going to consider others. You're not going to live selfishly. You're going to live sacrificially. But it's a joy to do it because you're serving the king. In the final analysis, there's nothing that honors Jesus more than love, you know. If you're living like that, then as Jesus said, the whole law is being fulfilled through your life. You're living the perfect kind of life. And when this, work, this love is working in you, there's no law required. You don't have to think, well, what, what, does, what does the law of God say? If you love them and copy them, there is no law required. Because love fulfills all righteousness. And what Paul and Jesus are saying, you won't have to worry about do's and don'ts and all that of the law. That's just a guide for us to show us what sin is. But if you obey his commandment to love one another, you don't need that. Because you're not going to harm their life. You're not going to steal or rob somebody. He says another thing, he says a similar thing, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. A life that lived under the control of agape is perfect in that it fulfills all the righteous requirements of God's law. You You don't think in terms of rules and regulations anymore. Because you won't be doing anything that would harm your relationship with God if you love him. And you won't do anything that harms your relationship with your fellow man if you love them. Love can do nothing wrong. If it's agape love can do nothing wrong. It sums up all of God's... 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul again says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Or as the King James, put, the authorized King James, the end of the commandment is love. It's an interesting point that Paul makes here because what he's saying is this. The summation of everything that God has spoken in Scripture is to this one intent that we might learn to love people, love one another. All the things we learn from the Word of God should bring us to that place. The end of the commandment, the summation, is found in that one principle of love. And if the scriptures don't do that in us, then all of that learning and all of that studying means nothing. Because it's there, all that stuff is there to bring us to something. 
It's to, it's to bring us to a place of loving. And by not having love in our lives it is a denial of everything we've learned. We talk about the spiritual life, spiritual Christians, and most people these days think of charismatic people when they, you know, believing in the experience of the gift of the Spirit and speaking in tongues, prophesying, you know, spirit-filled manifestations of the, and I believe all those things. We need the gifts of the Spirit in every in our lives. We need wisdom. We need, we need to be able to express our praise to God in tongues if that's what God wants to give us. If we need that, then that's fair enough. You'll give it. I'm totally into all that stuff. But while there's such a great emphasis on spiritual gifts, we, the church, have forgotten that the primary virtue of the Holy Spirit is agape love. And sadly... Very often men and women speak in tongues to God, but they speak in bitterness and resentment to their spouse. People say, she doesn't love me anymore. I don't love her anymore. You know why? Because you're not putting any love into your marriage. You're waiting for a feeling. It's got to be her that moves me emotionally. No. You start sowing love, patience, kindness, goodness into your marriage. And I'll tell you something, the feelings will follow. It's just lazy. Lift up holy hands, worship God, lift, and we don't lift a finger to serve anybody or serve God in any way. Sing praises to God in church and gossip in the car as you're leaving. Spirit-filled church, spirit-filled Christian. People will often speak, we want, we want more of God's power, more power. They want the miraculous. They love to see signs and wonders. They want to see the Holy Spirit move. Yet when he, he moves upon us by reminding us that his commandment is to love one another, oh, there's very little response to that kind of moving of the Spirit. We don't want God moving in that way. It means I might have to do something for somebody. It takes a lot more of the Holy Spirit to show mercy and grace and forgiveness than it does to speak in tongues, believe you me. Thus saith the Lord, you know, thus saith the Lord. Go and help your brother, and that's what the Lord says. Though I speak with the tongues of men, tongues of angels, but have no agape, I've become just a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith and so that I could remove mountains, but I have no love, I am nothing, Paul says. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, if I haven't got love, it profits nothing. How can we bless God with lifting up holy hands and, uh, and curse people who are made in the image of God? I'll close with this, you know. I believe, you know, we, we pray for revival. We pray for revival. 
We want God to revive. But you know when that revival comes, it will be a revival of a red-hot love for God and a red-hot love for other people. That's how it will manifest itself. That's how it will come. A red-hot love that, that, you know, if there is to be a genuine work of the Spirit that shakes the world, it will be a revival of agape love. A red-hot love for God that so fills our lives that it overflows and it just drenches everybody else. Love one another. Love one another. The apostle um, John, at the end of his life, you know, it's reported that when he used to teach at the end of his life and, and when his life was drawing to a close, The only thing he used to teach was brothers and sisters. Just love one another. Just love one another. So important, isn't it? Let's pray. Love you guys. I I want to say this before. Those ladies in the back, they they looked after us, Mark and I and, and the guys. They brought us more food than we could ever possibly eat. Do you want this? Do you want that? Can we do this? And this church is a serving church. And I believe that's a reflection of your pastor, you know. Appreciate Joe inviting me here. Love you guys. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given so much for us to contemplate and think about and And Lord, it's all wrapped up in that beautiful word, agape. Bless this church, Lord. Bless the pastor. Keep him well. Keep him strong. Bless his family. Bring him to England, Lord. Maybe for a year or two. (laughs) Lord, bless this church. Bless these people. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.